Well, if you would be turning in your copies of Scripture with me to Romans chapter 6. We're in verses 5 through 11 this morning. And we're calling this uh, the role of sanctification in baptism part two. And as I said, it's one of the ways in which we can continue to grow in applying our baptisms. That's language I'm sure that you've heard many times over at Christ Community Church. And like me, you may sometimes really struggle with that, all right? Uh, I kind of get what that means. What does it really mean to apply my baptism? Well, Paul is going to answer that for us in these verses. And so it's a good thing that we uh, get to come this morning and, and hear them. So this is Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth this morning, sort of a a quick 30,000-foot view of what Paul is talking about here, is this. Our key truth is... We live in the reality of all that is signified and sealed in our baptism as we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. We live, we live in the reality of all that is signified and sealed in our baptism as we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I think this raises a question for us right off the bat, and the question is, what is the most important fact about you? What's the most important fact about you? Now, biblically speaking, whatever else we may say about ourselves, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, the most important fact about you is that you are dead to sin and alive to God by virtue of your union with Christ. Bar none. Not not your family history, not, not your job, not your upbringing, Uh, not even what's happened to you this week. The most important thing about you is that you are dead to sin and alive to God by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. Now, this is vitally important to come to grips with because your view of yourself, it shapes the things that you think are possible in your life. It does. It, It shapes how you plan to improve yourself this year and what you think is possible, what you imagine for yourself. It shapes how you will engage the big issues, how confident you feel about uh, inserting yourself into various conversations and and the the assets and and experience that you bring to that. It shapes how you'll be a friend. It certainly shapes how you'll be a wife or a husband or a parent or a son or a daughter. And most of all, it it shapes how how vigorously and and perseveringly we're going to participate in our Christian discipleship and what we think will be the result if we do. So it's vitally important to come to grips with. But, but one reason there's so much, I think, there, there can often be so much quit in us when it comes to our discipleship, it, why our growth in grace and sanctification so often seems like such a monumental thing, it's because we fail to recognize that the most important thing about us is that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Already dead to sin. Already dead to sin. Already alive to God because we belong to Jesus. Which is to say, one reason why discipleship seems like such a monumental thing is because our baptism doesn't really strike us as the most important thing about us, even though it actually really is. Other things seem more important. Other things seem more monumental and more defining. 
but they're not. Here's one way you, you can know that the answer to that question can be difficult for us uh, and why it's so important to come to grips with is because the answer to that question, what's the most important fact about you, often changes with the times. I mean, doesn't it? When you're young, the most important fact about you is maybe that you have a certain GPA or that you're engaged in a certain course of study. Later, it becomes the, the kind of relationships that you have, and, and still later, the kind of job that you have, and still later, whether you're married or single, and still later, you know, what, 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 how you're growing in your career. So it's hardly a static thing, this, this, this thing of what we think is the most important thing about us. It can be a changing thing, and that, that changing horizon shifts what we imagine for ourselves. And, and, and add to that all the things that make up our unique individuality, all the things that we would count our, our particular strengths and our weaknesses, our, life, our likes and our dislikes, all these things impact our view of ourselves. And correspondingly, the, they influence the vision we have for the future of our lives. And of course, circumstances play a big role in that too. The, the kinds of things that you think are most important about you when you're feeling strong and healthy are not usually the kind of things you think are the most important thing about you when you're feeling weak and sick. And so your circumstances play a big role in that too. So, so haven't you noticed with me that, that all of this shifting experience often makes it hard to rem remember the reality of the gospel? It, it makes it hard for me to really reckon, no, actually my baptism means that the most important fact about me, however I'm feeling on a particular moment in a particular day, is that I'm alive to God and dead to sin. But that's the reality. So we need to come to grips with it. So thank the Lord for the truth of Romans 6, 5 through 11. The most important fact about you is that you're dead to sin and alive to God by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. That's what your baptism signifies and seals. That, by the way, is what is most real about you. And I, I think often this can be a bit of a shock to us, even if we've been Christians for a long while and have been in the church for a long while and heard this many times over, because we fail to remember how radical, how really radical the Christian message is. But this is what it is. The most real thing about you is something that happened that you can't really often see and it's difficult for you to appreciate on a day-to-day -day basis, that you're dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. I can't think about, help but think about the, the illustration that J.I. Packer gave in his wonderful book, Knowing God. And in the introduction, he introduces us to a man who had been a Christian for many years, was um, working at a university, I think Oxford or Cambridge, something like that, and had been passed over for a full professorship because of his Christian convictions. And as J.I. Packer was talking to this man, the man just kind of casually said, you know what, it doesn't matter, because I've known God, and they haven't. And J.I. Packer used that to illustrate you know, think about that. For that man, that, that evidence is a depth. He wasn't just saying that. Like, I think oftentimes we can just kind of say, you know, we know it's a Christian thing to say. Like, ah, I know God and they don't. But for us, it's not really indicative of a deep kind of real relationship. But, but he really meant it. That doesn't matter. I've known God, and that's enough for me. How, how often can we really say that? And, and oftentimes we struggle with this because we fail to recognize the most important fact about us, even this very moment, is that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so this is what we must remember and set our minds upon if we're seeking to make progress in our sanctification. So let's see it more particularly in the text. So in, in Romans chapter 6, Paul has spent the first four verses by pointing out that our baptism was a baptism into Jesus Christ, which is to say it was a baptism that made us participants in him of his death on the cross for sin. And now he's just got through saying all the way in chapter 5 that Jesus' redemptive work for his people means that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And this, of course, astounding fact raises then the question for Paul's readers, well, wait a second, does that mean that I just get to keep on sinning 
in order that I get more grace? Is that, isn't, that thing where, isn't that where this thing logically leads, Mr. Paul? And so Paul's answer to that in Romans chapter 6 is no, because you see the source of this superabundance of grace is in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And the way that you receive that grace, the way that we get the grace that we need from our gracious Father is by uniting you to the person and work of Jesus Christ so that his death for sin becomes your death for sin and his resurrection to new life becomes your resurrection to new life. There is no other way to get the saving grace that you and I need than by being united to Jesus. And so now in verse five, he begins to spell it out even further. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if you share in Jesus's death, you certainly share in his resurrection. Can't have one without the other. Jesus's death means, inevitably, it means you will live. Because he didn't stay dead, and neither will you. This is not a point for debate. It's not an obscure theological implication that we kind of got to hedge our bets on, like, yeah, maybe it's there, you know, more than likely. No, this is a certain truth. A sacrifice for sin had to be paid. The wages of sin are death. And we were all at one time under the terrible wrath of God with no hope for eternal life. But Jesus became our sacrifice. He paid our debt. He brought us into the presence of God, spotless and clean. And he did it by uniting us to himself. So right now, if you're a Christian, you belong to him in such a deep and intimate way that what is true of him is now true of you because you belong to him. And so you're starting to see, I hope, how Paul's logic is working here. You start to see how absurd the question is, does grace mean that I get to keep on sinning, that more grace may abound? I mean, that only works if you conceive of grace as some sort of abstract thing, something that's just out there in the ether, some substance that you can kind of have some of and maybe less of and kind of get some more now and lose some later. That's not how grace works, though. If grace is only found in my union with Jesus Christ, if I receive it because I belong to him and share in all that is true about him, the question starts to not even make any sense. If I'm looking to Jesus, why would I think, be thinking about sinning? If I'm sharing in all that he is and all that he has done and all that has been given to him by the Father, why would I want to go back to the very thing that separated me from all of that? So many of our difficulties in the Christian life stem from the fact that we fail to remember that we're victorious in the Christian life only because we belong to Jesus. And this is why we need to remember our baptism. This is why it's so critically important. What you're remembering isn't so much the physical act of baptism, although that's important. But if you don't remember it, that's not, that doesn't mean the game over for you. What you're remembering is not so much the physical act of baptism or the events surrounding it, so much of what it means about you. But you're a different kind of person now. Sin, death, the world, and the devil, these things just don't have the same kind of grip on you as they once did. You have a different allegiance, a different set of priorities and critically, a different hope. And, and this is why this is so important. If you share in Jesus' death, that is, if, you, if you're banking upon his death to be for you the payment that you need for your sins, you also share in his resurrection. That is, you share in the power of his eternal life. Now, we have to be careful here because there's a double sense of what this means for Paul because Paul has a very keen sense of the already not yet tension that is present in this earthly life. And there's an already not yet tension in this aspect of sharing in Jesus' resurrection. Already, I know that this is true of me. Already, I begin to see the Spirit at work in my life as, as, he, as he brings his power to bear in all the various shapes and, and facets of things I face each week. 
Already my, my allegiance has been shifted to a new Lord and Savior. Already I can see my selfish self-centeredness giving way to this new capacity to love. And I'm seeing new growth in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. All the fruit of the Spirit. And yet the fullness of that new life is not yet. I'm not yet glorified like I shall one day be glorified. I'm not thrown off this body of sin like one day I will throw it off. But, but that one, that one day will certainly come. So one of the ways that we can know that this truth is moving from the realm of abstraction to something that is really rooted in our souls and stuck to our ribs and, and part and parcel of who we really are is that we're marked by humility. You see, I can be honest about who I am because I belong to Jesus. I don't need to protect some reputation that I think I have because I belong to Jesus. And I can be patient, too. What do I have, what do I have to be anxious about? I belong to Jesus. I can endure and I can persevere because I belong to Jesus. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about it even yesterday, even thinking about, you know, having to go back to wear masks full-time in the community center and just, ah, ah, feels like such a step backwards in some respects. It feels so defeating in some respects. Then I think, well, wait a second. What does it mean as I even think about that to remember my baptism? It means I belong to Jesus. What do I have to worry about? I can endure. I can persevere. It doesn't make us apathetic. But it, Christian, the Christian life is not a life where you just sort of adopt a sort of case or ross or what will happen will happen. What will be, what will be. That's not what this is talking about. It means that I don't have to face those things with the weapons of the flesh, with anxiety, with defeat, means I get to confront them with, with a renewed power for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. I get to be imaginative and creative. I get to remember I belong to Jesus. And that transforms everything about me. It transforms everything about my circumstances. And yes, it's hard to see sometimes. We walk by faith and not by sight. But it is certainly true. Here's a promise for us in 2022, something I think we really can come to grips with, something that can really help us to, to grow in perseverance, and I think even as we grow in perseverance, grow in joy, something that I really want to grow in this year. Yeah, it's been a difficult two years, <laughs> and even before that, I, I think sometimes we forget. It's been difficult all, we live in a fallen world, but it's been particularly difficult. But here's a promise that we can latch onto in 2022. As I was thinking about this even over the new year, as I uh, myself had COVID and was just feeling pretty crummy, wasn't able to celebrate the new year with family and friends, and was, you know, had some bitter thoughts about it, you know, just kind of stuck in my room, laid up in my bed, and I could hear people, my neighbors outside, very helpfully marked, you know, the mystifyingly momentous arrival of every half hour with fireworks, <laughs> and, uh, and just kind of feeling crummy about it, and, and, and just kind of praying, like, Lord, I know this is not the way you want me to feel, but it's just kind of how I feel, and he brought to mind that, that wonderful truth in Psalm 27, of this I'm, I can be confident. I will live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And you may say, well, that sounds pretty dramatic. Okay, yeah, maybe. But, but you know, here, here's something that we can really, la this, this, was a this is a promise that is true for us in 2022, as it was in 2021, 2020, and all the years before that, and will continue to be true for us all the rest of our years. I will live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And Why? Why is that true? Why, why can I bank upon that? Especially when the devil whispers low and says, ah, I don't know, I'm not so sure about you because, you know, you, you've got some stuff you need to work on, you know, and, and you come to church on Sunday mornings and you're not as happy as you probably should be. Why is this, why can I know that this is still true? Because it's not on me, because I belong to Jesus. And so that's what our baptism means. It means that this promise gets to be front and center in your mind as you walk through life because you belong to Jesus. 
And, and by the way, this is the experience of, of every Christian saint throughout the whole of redemptive history. Uh, just to give one example, think of Jacob. Remember how Jacob describes his life pretty much near the end of his life as he finally comes back into Egypt, or arrives in Egypt, finally gets to see his son Joseph, who for many years he thought was completely dead. And his report to Pharaoh, and I've always found this just very odd, but his report to Pharaoh is, um, look, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And you're saying, man, that doesn't sound like a very good Christian testimony. Like, you know, he's he's talking to the most powerful guy in the world, and his testimony of God's goodness is, few and evil have been the days of my life. But but, but think about it. You know, he he had all these wonderful promises of the Lord, and yet, and yet, I mean, he was the, the heir of the Abrahamic promise, the son of Isaac, and yet, the moment he's born, he's struggling with his brother Esau, there's family dysfunction like you wouldn't believe. And then he, he, he runs away from home, uh, finds this girl that he, he immediately falls in love with, works seven years for her, but turns out, oh, no, actually he's tricked. It's not the woman that he loves. So he's got, he got to work another seven years. And then finally gets her, brings immediately, immediate family dysfunction, goes back to the land of Canaan, is, is for sure convinced that his brother Esau is out to kill him as this you know, extremely anxious experience. The Lord comes and comforts him. But then even after that, his daughter is violated. His sons avenge his daughter by you know, totally ransacking this whole entire tribe that immediately makes them odious in the land. Then after that, his beloved son is gone. His, wife is, his beloved wife is dead. He thinks his beloved son is, is dead as well. Finally, he makes it to Egypt, and his report is, yeah, few and evil have been the days, the years of my life. But, but that testified even to him that he recognized that all of God's good promises to him, you'll be an inheritance, you, you have an inheritance in the land of Canaan, I'll make you, your, your nation, your family is a nation that can't be numbered for the, the stars and the sands on, on the seashore. It testified that he even recognized that promise wasn't just limited to this life. I will live to see the, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Think of Jesus. His, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Think of the apostles. And yet, over and against all of these, these struggle, over against all of our difficulties, we have this certain promise, I will live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so because we belong to Jesus, we can be people who grow in perseverance and endurance because we know the Lord is with us. And we can be people who grow in joy because we know this promise is true for us. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, it would be a mistake, as sometimes has been done, to view that, uh, to, to think that what Paul is saying here is that we have two natures, a sinful nature and a holy nature or a sinful self and a holy self. And that sometimes the, the sinful self has the upper hand, and sometimes the holy self has the upper hand. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the old self, that body of sin, has been completely done away with. It's been killed on the cross with Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying that that new self, the, the, the risen self, has been risen to new life with Jesus Christ. So uh, apart from Christ, we lived enslaved to that old self, following its passions and desires, corrupted by them and corrupting others through them. But no more. That old self is dead. It's been brought to nothing. We've been set free because it's been killed. So now what? What's the consequence of that? Verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. There's a whole world of comfort in these words. Not only is that old self dead, but we share in the work that definitively put him to death. 
namely Jesus' death on the cross. And so completely do we share in this that we truly feel Christ's power at work in our lives to raise us to new life with him. Yes, we'll not experience that in all its fullness until the resurrection of our bodies when he comes again. But this truth is so real and so powerful that it casts its shadow even into our present life and experiences. And then in verse 9 and 10, Paul goes even further. He says that we know Christ, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. What's amazing about these verses is that Paul talks about Jesus' relationship to sin in the same way that he's earlier described our relationship to sin. He says that Jesus died to sin. And that can be kind of mystifying, can't it? Because we know why we need to die to sin. We're, we're sinful. But why did Jesus, who never you know, sinned, in what sense did he need to die to sin? Now, it's true that Jesus didn't need to be freed from the power of sin in quite the same way that we need to be freed from it, but yet Jesus was just as much subject to the effects of the power of sin as we were, with the important difference that he never himself sinned. And because he experienced fully what it is to live in this world of sin and sickness and death, and because he fully identified with us in living under the rule of sin, we get to fully identify with him in his victory over it. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has dominion over you. Think about what this means. Your sinful habits don't have dominion over you. They don't. Oh, I know they may seem, they seem powerful from time to time, but only because you struggle to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. But they've been robbed of their power by his death and resurrection, which has become your death and resurrection. Experienced in part in this life and fully in the age to come, but fully yours, 100% yours, because you are in him. Think about what it means. It means sickness has no dominion over you. It means frustration and exasperation and futility in a fallen world no longer has dominion over you. Uncertainty and having to make the best decisions that you can with limited and fallible information has no dominion over you. It doesn't mean that these things suddenly go away. It doesn't mean we don't have to deal with them in this world. It means that they don't have the final say. They're not determinative of the course of your life. Jesus is. Because the life that he lives, he lives to God. And by his res resurrection, he has, he has given us new power to carry out God's will and purpose for his glory, for the glory of his name, and for the everlasting good of his people. The gospel is the proclamation that these things are true, and your response to them isn't the thing that activates them in your life. It's the evidence that the Holy Spirit has sealed them in your heart and that he's working to bring the power contained in God's rich promises to bear in all the aspects of your life and personality. And so, at the end of this great chain of reasoning, we reach the application in verse 11. Given all of this, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must. This is a matter of utmost importance. You must do this. You must consider yourself. It's not you must die to sin. and it's not You must fix yourself. It's not that you must be better. You need to go and fix yourself. You need to get a self-scrubbed image to go before a holy and good God. It's this. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's a matter of taking this into account, of reckoning that this is the most important fact about yourself, to take it seriously. This is what John Stott says. I think he's very helpful on this. He says, the major secret of holy living is in the mind. It is in knowing that our former self was crucified with Christ, in knowing that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death and resurrection, and in considering 
that through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they're so integral to our mindset that a return to the old life, it's unthinkable. For our union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. Our baptism stands between the two like a door between two rooms, closing on the one and opening into the other. We have died and we have risen. How can we possibly live again in what we've died to? So a question for us, a question of application for us. In 2022, what will you invest your time and energy and affection into that will help you to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? Uh, years and years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the famous Welsh preacher from about two generations or so ago, he was preaching through Romans chapter 6, and, and he had one of the best illustrations of kind of what this means for us practically that I think I've ever heard. He, he said, imagine, and, and this is an illustration that's not too hard for us, I think, as Americans to imagine is true. He said, imagine you lived in a kingdom in which there were two classes of people, an oppressed class and an oppressor class. And the oppressed class live in slavery, so that any time a member of the oppressor class was out in public and saw a member of the oppressed class, they could say to them, go and do this for me, and they would have to do it. And they would say, go and think this for me. And they'd have to think it. And go have an affection for this for me. And they'd have to have an affection. And if you, did, if you failed to do it, a member of the oppressor class could have you beaten, could have you thrown in jail. And so everyone in the oppressed class just automatically did whatever the oppressor class told them to do. And then imagine one day, a new king comes into the kingdom and he says, all right, that way of doing things is completely over. Uh, and and I, I have such power, I'll send my troops out in all the streets, I have such power that anytime anybody from the oppressor class, or previously of the oppressor class, comes into the streets and tries to command around somebody in the oppressed class, I'm going to throw them in jail. So their power is completely broken and done away with. And yet, it continues to be the case that in that kingdom, the people of the oppressed class, whenever they ran into somebody in the oppressor class, still would think, I have to do what he tells me to do. And, and the people in the oppressor class would think to themselves, oh, he doesn't really mean it, I still have that kind of power. And so every time they saw somebody in the oppressed class, they would, they would try to command them around, just do this and do that. And so even though the law had completely changed, even though oh, the, the power of the oppressor class had been broken, people in the oppressed class still continued to struggle, really, to believe that that was the case and to live their new lives. Well, it's like that for us. Jesus come and said, the power of sin is completely broken over you. No longer do sin and death and the flesh and the devil in the world have the power to come to you in the street and say to you, go and do this thing. Go and love that thing. Go and have affection for that thing. That's no longer true of you. And yet we often fail to recognize that that's the case. We often fail to reckon with it. And so that's why so much of our, our struggle in the Christian life seems to be so monumental. Of living into the Christian life seems to be so difficult. It's because we fail to reckon. There's a new administration we no longer live under the old rule. That power has been completely broken, but it has. And so the truth of Romans 6, the, 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 the imperative that we have as Christians to remember our baptisms, the way in which that really has some feet in our lives and, and is practically relevant for us, is that we have to reckon that these things are true of us now. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so what are you going to invest your time in that will help you to grow in this reality to help you to become more practiced in recognizing you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are many voices, we've said this before, there are many voices in our culture. Many of them have a message for our times. Many people are out there saying, this is the word of the Lord for you, the people, the people of God. This is what we must do and think. How is it helping you to grow in reckoning yourself 
dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If it's not helping you, brothers and sisters, I strongly encourage you, lean into something that will do that. Lean into the worship of God on Sunday mornings. Be a part of a small group. Be a part of a discipleship group that will help you to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing more important for us in 2022 because it'll be the key that will help us to lean into the promise. I will certainly see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So what are you going to invest in that will help you to remember your baptism? Well, what does Romans 6 verses 5 through 11 teach us? Simply this, we live... We live in the reality of all that is signified and sealed in our baptism as we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. May the Spirit help this, help us to remember this truth, to reckon it true of us, that we would live in the power of it all this year and the rest of our lives. Would you pray with me as we ask him to do that for us? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you have saved us, and Lord, that you have saved us in this particular way, that you've drawn us into Jesus, so that what is true of him is true of us. Lord, we thank you that his death to sin is our death to sin. Lord, we thank you that his resurrection to new life is our resurrection to new life. Lord, we thank you for this promise. We will live to see your goodness in the land of the living. Lord, you know that we often struggle with this. Help us to be people who lean into our baptisms. That is to say, Lord, help us to be people who remember that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lord, if this were up to us, if it were up to our own power, we know that we would quickly fall by the wayside. Lord, but we know that you, out of the abundance of your grace and goodness, because we are united to your son, Jesus Christ, that you will surely do this. So we, we call upon that promise, Lord. We ask that you, by your spirit, would lift up our hearts and minds out of ourselves and into the reality of who we really are in our identity with Christ. Do this for us, we ask. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.